0: no it's the the worst kind of left bro is the guy who gets excited when the new left review lands on his doormat
1: i agree with that i that <laughs> that publication is is in the in the bit it's getting the ci i'm i'm done with it that and the lrb are now
0: over sugar gang what's that mean like House. we're not
2: friends no no longer friends with <laughs> lrb nr nlr <laughs> now friends with no i have no friends
0: (laughs)
1: american affairs american (laughs) affairs Yeah. yeah
2: Hello there, listeners, friends, patrons. Welcome to another three articles. Uh, For those who aren't familiar, we're discussing three articles on a theme. It's kind of like a bit of a show and tell. We each bring our own uh, little thing to show, you know, or big thing. And actually, in this case, uh, the articles are quite long, so they are quite big. Right. And actually, the subject uh, today is, I guess, money and power in times of COVID. Uh, So it's all the good stuff. Money and power. No sex, unfortunately. Uh, Maybe next time, maybe never. Right, hi guys, how's it going? Uh, Phil is in Canterbury as usual. George is in London, and uh, I, Alex Hochuli, am in São Paulo.
1: Hello.
0: Good. That was just no. a
1: fun, fantastic introduction. <laughs> Pretty much speechless already. Um,
0: <laughs> Long may it remain. Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, London's good. How's how São Paulo?
2: It's uh, it's odd. It's weird. The uh, the governor has decided to bring. Forward two holidays, one from July, one from October, uh, Corpus Christi and uh, the Day of Black Consciousness. Forward to today and tomorrow, to create in an attempt to create an actual six-day holiday uh, <laughs> as a way of like doing a lockdown. Now, the, the the on face value, it looks like health reasons, right? So because uh, São Paulo has a very high number of cases, uh, how uh, much, it's not how going much, down. How much
0: advance notice did you were you given of the of the holidays of, being brought forward?
2: Oh, like two days or something. It was, yeah. So Express basically... these holidays. Yeah, exactly. And and so you, you think it's for health reasons, you know, just do a lockdown to, to put, put a lid on this thing. But really, it seems more economic reasons. Basically, they don't want these holidays in the future when things open up again. So, you know, just bring them forward now, make that, you know, what ended up happening, which was so obviously predictable, was that everyone's gone on holiday. Uh, people have just gone to see family and whatever, probably also thinking, hey, I'm getting these holidays taken away from me. Fuck you, I'm going to make use of them now. I'm driving to the beach or I'm driving wherever to see my family in the interior of the state, or whatever. So yeah, there's like pictures of long traffic jams because people have gone off to do stuff and see family. Um, So obviously it's not going to work very well and it all continues being very grim with ICUs at 90% capacity. Anyway.
1: Sounds fun. Sounds good. I mean,
2: uh, Corona, is that our Corona chat over? Yeah. we. Well, no, go, on, no, go no.
1: on. It's just, I guess we're sort of forced to do this at the beginning of every episode. Like how's, how's life? But it's, it's the same. It's the same De- demobilized. At least it's, at least it's, it's sunny in the UK. Could be worse. Could be raining.
2: Um, but your weather chat is getting cut out. <laughs> like your weather every, all, all you have to say is just, just very British weather chat. Yeah
1: um but no which how how are these different holidays being celebrated then do you have are there specific like f- festival practices corpus christi do you eat the body of christ
2: no man i'm I'm not Catholic. Um,
1: I have no idea what
2: they do, uh, and you know anything that would be a public celebration, like Day of Black Consciousness, for instance, uh, obviously wouldn't be happening. You know concerts and whatever. Is that, so
0: is that is that um, a state holiday or a federal holiday?
2: No, no, it's a nationwide holiday, but it's uh, different states kind of govern it different differently. So you know, anyway, the the, the state of São Paulo has brought it, brought them forward. Um, yeah, to no great success. So shall we get on to the articles? Yeah. yeah. Right. So um, as I said, it's kind of money and power and uh, in, in times of COVID, we've got three different articles. Um, I'll just say what they are. I know what they are already. It's not like these are surprise things, like we all read all of them, but we each have each bring our own ones. So the first one, uh, which I will introduce in just a second, is by Adam Tooze in Foreign Policy, The Death of the Central Bank Myth. Um, The second one will be a uh, an interview with Philip Murawski, why the neoliberals won't let this crisis go to waste, which is in Jacobin. And the third one is a a medium blog by Curtis Yarvin, uh, plan A for the coronavirus, which George will introduce uh, in the third section of this episode. Right. So um, I guess I'll get going and explain what is in this twos one. Uh, and guys, go ahead and, you know, interrupt me on, on anything. Uh, but basically, what this argument, what the argument of this article is, and it's a fairly long and uh, substantial and in-depth sort of piece, is that uh, what the central bank was meant to do uh, has now been, um, it's exceeded its bounds of what it was meant to do. So And and so twos argues what we need is a new monetary constitution. So, what prompted this was, and th- this is the kind of more boring part of the piece, which is uh, there was a the German Constitutional Court, which is based in Karlsruhe, uh, overruled uh, or ruled against uh, a European Central Bank uh, attempt to uh, to to uh, to increase inflation, basically. Um, and I won't go too much into that because th- that's kind of fairly legalistic. Um, the basic point. Uh, is that what the central bank was meant to be doing, uh, now it kind of does something entirely different, and uh, constitutions haven't really adapted to deal with that. So basically, to explain what central banks were meant to do and what they do now, uh, is that they're, you know, countermajoritarian institutions, so things that are meant to kind of limit popular sovereignty. Um, and You know, certainly in the form of the independent central bank was meant to control inflation, to keep prices stable. That's its main job, and it should has to do that, uh, irrespective of the consequences in terms of, you know, for example, creating uh, high unemployment. So,
0: So it came just to so just to build on that a bit. So it comes out of the 1970s with the with the disintegration of Bretton Woods the shift to um, controlled rather than managed, sorry, to floating rather than managed exchange rates. And with that, um, also the fear, the basic theory being that governments would always have an incentive to um, grant the demands of organised labour in order to make problems go away and that this would feed into inflation. And therefore, the way to control that was to remove the capacity to... Um, or remove control of the money supply away from elected governments with the with the aim being that it would bring inflation under control
1: yeah so yeah and that's exactly what happened so there's essentially two there's essentially two parts of the the kind of central bank myth um one of them is is independence so it's the independence of these central bankers against the short-term interests of elected politicians you know the kind of the venal like uh, short-sightedness of, of our elected representatives, and that's exactly the point about counter-majoritarian um, institutions. And the second one is that it, of course, makes monetary policy technical. So central banks are legitimated by their technical expertise, um, and that's, I think, the two the two pillars of the central bank myth. that two's um, claims is is dead.
2: Yeah, and it's dead because it was, in some ways, I guess, a victim of its own success. So
1: what happens is that what, the you end up with central banks inflation. were too good. I'm sorry, we're going to they have were too to good. Were, well, you because you're too good at being a central banker. Yeah, well, you know, they they
2: they effect, They were instrumental in in breaking the back of organized labor through creating very high inflation. Uh, excuse me, very high unemployment, uh, as well as you know, deindustrialization, the offshoring of jobs, and whatever. Basically, the breaking of the back of organized labor meant that there weren't all these demands being placed on the state. And what ended up happening is that instead of these, you know, supposedly irresponsible uh, politicians responding to the, all the demands placed upon them, uh, pork barrel spending, you know, trying to win over constituencies through through higher fiscal spending, uh, they were disciplined. The problem is that they're now so disciplined uh, that they have extremely. Large room for maneuver uh, in today's times. You know, you've got such low interest rates, or even negative interest rates, that they could borrow to build stuff, for example, right? To to invest in infrastructure, and yet they don't do it. Uh, The as Tuz puts it, like the politicians drank the the neoliberal Kool Aid. Um, So you have this kind of paradoxical situation where the central bank ends up having to step in um, because of low growth, because of low productivity, etc., because of uh, depressed demand, especially during the global financial crisis, its aftermath, and again now today, the central banks have to step in um, and, you know, do things like quantitative easing. And so it's so exceeded its bounds uh, that Tews argues, you know, it, it's uh, it kind of, you need a new constitution. And what's brought this all to light has been this uh, German court ruling, uh, arguing that precisely that it did overstep its bounds.
0: Yeah, I mean, the detail of the German court ruling is fairly complex and in as much as it's uh, all refracted through the the internal politics of the eurozone, um, and essentially a case of the German of German uh, German inst- well institutions of the German state claiming uh, sovereignty as against the supranational institutions of the European Union, and putting other institutions of the German state, such as the Bundesbank, which obviously is um, a significant player within the European um, central bank in very difficult, awkward positions. So, I mean, there's a great deal of, um, you know, the kind of uh, telling the story of the role of central banks since the 1970s, combined with the immediate um, questions surrounding the German court's ruling, um, bearing in mind at the same time that, um, you know, the German court's ruling, though it's uh, clawing back or establishing at least the kind of the outer limits of German sovereignty in the context of the European Union, at the same time, it's also... It's also completely you know based on a um, kind of uh, remote vision of what central banking and what modern what modern uh, finance looks like at the same time. so there's many layers of confusion um, to the picture. I suppose what's um I mean so it's a point I mean it's a point we've developed on the podcast before and um, And I've developed, you know, made in other contexts, but it's a very important inflection point, I think. And this is worth drawing out with respect to the twos article, because central banks, the independence of central banks was a cornerstone of modern technocracy and of neoliberalism. The jewel in the crown, in fact, of the whole enterprise in many ways, Um, making, keeping the monetary control over the monetary supply, keeping control over interest rates separate from elected governments was absolutely critical to what neoliberalism embodied as a political and legal project over the last 30 years and it's been completely delegitimized now and so twos is responding to that moment and it's the i mean there's no other way to say it i mean it is absolutely um the citadel at the center of modern neoliberal technocracy that needs storming and from that viewpoint i what i found frustrating about the twos article is um And also his whole kind of critique of central banks is that it's very carey. He pulls back from drawing any strong conclusions. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. he doesn't say democratize. So he just says it's the end of the central bank myth, which is obvious to anyone who's kind of following, you know, kind of observing the situation. But he doesn't offer any actual solutions. He's unwilling to say abolish central bank independence. He's willing to suggest perhaps that central banks should have a mandate that goes beyond simply um avoiding inflation so he's trying to kind of renew provide a kind of an expanded rationale effectively for a post-neoliberal technocracy he's unwilling to say that they should be simply reincorporated and uh, reincorporated into the and under the control and rubric of elected governments so that the I mean, neo that's... the kind of technocratic st- citadel should yeah. be stormed and overthrown so he says we need a debate about it you know which seems to me a kind of a very um let's have a, a debate and let's have yeah. the
1: best kind of technical uh, solution
0: yeah. win.
1: i mean it's a bit of a leap of faith to to for many people i think to take to say there are severe problems with central banks let's let's democratize let's have a
0: deba- well, because no, but that's the worst to say let's have a debate about it so he let's should have a, let's have it. a
1: new let's have a new constitution that's almost solving the problem of the weaknesses of technocracy with more better technocracy. But if you wants a new I mean,
0: constitution, you should no, tell you. No, 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 no. It's, it
2: it's a legalist. He's not telling yeah. us. And it's a legalistic solution. It seems to be a legalistic solution. Because I mean, if you have a new constitution, which is the product of popular struggles, then okay, fine. But this doesn't even mention popular struggles in the in the kind of debate over what the central bank should be. And I mean, just to kind of recap a point and maybe put it in a little bit more pointed terms, because I think it's worth restating, is that you know the myth of the Independent Central Bank was that it was depoliticized. But at least there was in some sense, uh, you know, the kind of guidances of how it should work, which is quite limited. And what the the current moment shows is precisely that it's that that it has ex- that it's basically needing to act in a political manner um, and being so much more nakedly political than it even was before. Right.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, no, sure. I suppose. But this is what I find, you know, if you want to say we need a new constitution, a new kind of framework and vision within which the role with which or which provides the um, picture within which central banks can insert themselves, tell us what the picture should be. This idea, we need to have a debate about it without telling us kind of a concrete vision of what it should be, seems to me suspicious. And he is, I mean, you know, if you follow kind of what Adam Tews has been saying about central banking and how it's been transformed in light of the crisis and in light of the earlier great, in light of the financial crash of 2008, he's very wary. He roll, he pulls back from saying that their independence should be abolished and they should simply be restored to being um, subject to the decisions of elected governments.
2: Yeah, and I, I wanted to bring something up in respect to that because, you know, uh, the idea of a post neoliberal technocracy is quite interesting, and it's something that um, came up recently in a discussion in some discussions that I was having, in part on the article that I wrote for, for Damage Magazine, which is that you know people are going well, you know, but you can have, for example, the corporatist state of of kind of post war Western Europe was technocratic as well, but obviously it was more. I don't know. The, the the room for policymaking was much wider than within the kind of neoliberal period, um, and the question then is: okay, so if we're leaving the kind of peak neoliberalism now, uh, you know, do, does that mean neoliber- Does that mean technocracy goes, or do we end up with a new kind of form of technocracy? And you could imagine, for example, because you know, Tuz mentions it here. So Tuz says: slow growth, inequality, and unemployment are at the root both of many of our social ills and by the same token, the problem of the debt burden, right? So you could imagine a, a, a continuing, uh, in, uh, con- excuse me, you could imagine continuing central bank independence uh, under a new constitution, a sort of new political arrangement uh, stitched up behind closed doors uh, in, in parliaments or wherever, and uh, w- which, which state that, central banks should resolve these issues but again it's again it's it's a depoliticized form of of resolving these issues and you know that that's completely a, a feasible thing to, or a, a plausible scenario that you could that could come about
1: yeah i mean that's that's the the challenge isn't it to not just oppose the um i guess to say that it, it's not sufficient to have central banks just solving different problems or to have so as Tews puts it, you know, it's counter-majoritarian institutions with the single aim of of keeping inflation low. The problem is not having that single aim of keeping inflation low. It's the counter-majoritarian bit. So,
2: yeah. And it's not, and it's not just that. It's that it's monetary policy, right? It, it <laughs> We're talking about the central bank, which can only really do uh, monetary policy, albeit uh, in a vastly transformed way in the ways that, you know, Tews spells out in the article. So, you know, to, to restrict this discussion purely to central banks is also to kind of miss the, the, the wider political picture. Um, speaking of the wider political picture, maybe we should move on to the second article.
0: Yeah, so this is a uh, trans. It's the transcription of an of interview which um, Alex Doherty, who runs the political, um, sorry, politics theory other podcast, did with Philip Marowski. Um, and it was published in the transcription of the interview was published in Jacobin. It's uh, it's an interesting, you know, I mean, I'd it's worth listening to what Philip Morowski has to say. So the basic line that he puts across is that um, the left thinks the left thinks everything is going their way as a result of Corona. Because the state has had to step up to do all sorts of um, unprecedented things to rescue the economy. And that this is mistaken because the left can't take for granted or assume that it's going to be the beneficiary of the COVID crisis. And that in fact, many of the, that in many ways, the neoliberals are um, neoliberal political movements and the, or uh, theoretical movements, what he calls the neoliberal thought collective which is um, embedded in various kind of uh, magazines, intellectual um, institutions, think tanks, um, and has has control or, or influence over wealthy donors, such as the Koch brothers and others, that they're in a position, in fact, to benefit and that they're taking sucker from certain developments that have happened. So, for instance, the shift online and the ability to cut costs, Um, two examples that he gives would be say the fact the shift kind of to online education in college higher education institutions is something that neoliberals have wanted for a long time so distance learning is a way to drive down costs in higher education and also
1: they've they've got it now matt i don't know if you saw the university of cambridge is putting all of its lectures for next year online It's, uh, Uh,
0: yeah. So, I mean, there is. So, there, well, we'll see. I mean, the University in Bolton, um, a much less prestigious institution than Cambridge, has just announced that it's not going to go online very pointedly. Um, So, it's a bit of a mixed picture. But the other example he also gives is medicine. That um, the idea that, you know, so effectively, if you can't afford it, you won't need to see a doctor, but you will get access to your doctor through your Internet connection. And this is a way to drive down costs. So he's saying, you know, there are aspects of the COVID crisis that are directly in line with what the um, what neoliberals have envisaged as a way of um, driving down costs and public spending in various areas of the economy. The problem, I think, is, though, I mean, there are so many problems with what he points out. Um, part of it is this, what I call, kind of peril envy on the part of the left. So this is linked to the Mount, the Mount yeah. Peril Society, which stemming back to the post-war period was one of the most um, kind of, inf- it was an influential center in which um, various neoliberal thinkers, economists, people like uh, Friedman and um, Friedrich von Hayek would get together to kind of shape their ideas And the left has for a long time seen that um, the Mont Society has kind of been developing over this period this schema by which they would benefit from crises and take advantage and opportunity of them. And there's always this assumption that there's this nefarious, cunning group of neoliberals who always have the best laid plans and who are always going to benefit from any crisis because they have... um, highly they're highly intricately organized and they have um control yeah. and influence and it's you know it verges effectively on conspiratorial thinking in my mind it doesn't account for the
2: f- well i mean you I, in, in some cases, in in open admiration. I mean, I remember uh, Alex Williams and Nick Cernachek's book uh, on I don't remember what it was called, Folk Politics, something, uh, which the uh, which explicitly advocated, uh, you know, a Pelerin society of yeah. the left. Uh, and I think Aaron Bastani's made comments similar. And you know, I, I think there's it's worth considering um, as a, as a proposition. But I I agree that there's a certain kind of Yeah, there's a kind of envy there. I can't Um, tell you how many
0: discussions I've sat through with people saying, "We need to do what the neoliberals did in the 1970s. We need to have think tanks. We need to have influence. We need to have these." uh, And it's uh, the uh, without accounting. I mean, the problem with it that it doesn't account for the failures of the left, from which neoliberals were able to take advantage. So it's a way of um, kind of uh, avoiding any internal discussions on the actual political failures of the left, projecting all this tremendous success onto the right um and that's just the beginning
1: you can see the appeal of this um idea right if you're a group of leftist academics the the thing to do is to set up some reading groups to produce some working papers and it doesn't even matter if nobody takes up your ideas in five ten years time because when there is a crisis i think it's almost the ideas it's the ideas lying around theory that you just need to have those have the right sort of um quality of working papers i mean th- i mean i i, I would if, say if, if, if,
2: within the context of a within the context of a strong left movement it makes yeah. sense because you then want to be in place to influence uh for example left government to adopt the policies that you think are the right ones as opposed to maybe competing oh, s- left factions or whatever well, a certain but I mean, kind as of, a way um, of
0: social democratic kind of left but i mean i think these the point is these you know these institutions exist on the left and they have for a while and it's a way of avoiding hard arguments. I mean, it takes for granted all sorts of things about what the left is and what it should be doing. It attributes tremendously this kind of uncanny power of influence and seduction to um, a handful of kind of think tanks and geeky um, neoliberal academics, a lot of whom were very you know, isolated for a large part of the period in the post-war period um and also i mean the other part of it is also that they you know kind of uh, all the deficiencies of the left are thrown onto on onto the neoliberal thought collective and then it becomes a mirror in which you see all the kind of problems in which you project all the problems of the left so the other kind of problem in this in the piece in the interview with morowski is when he talks about the leninism of the right so he talks through these uh, mm. these examples by which um These heavily funded uh, neoliberal think tanks have these get togethers with rich people where they basically tell rich people what to think and what to fund. And he sees it. He calls it Leninism, by which he means that it's um, kind of crypto authoritarian, heavily organized, centralized and directive. The implication being that the left isn't authoritarian. The left is kind of weak. The left is uh, disorganized, decentralized. And we need to be more Leninist, i.e. the left needs to be more authoritarian. So at the same time, it grossly mischaracterizes what Leninism is, which isn't um, authoritarian, but democratic okay, but centralist. Let, okay,
2: but let's leave it to but that B, left to one side. Using it as a B,
0: it also underestimates the authoritarianism of the contemporary left. Um, all the petty kind of micro-authoritarianism, the trolling, the policing, um, the factionalism, the sectarianism, ev- all of that which is rampant you know the authoritarianism of the left is rampant and all of that is kind of washed away in this um and ignored in favor of this what he he actually wants more authoritarianism by bringing in this model of centralized ideological dictation which would supposedly I... make the left more efficient the it's it's okay, hard to begin I, with
2: I, how I, much I, sorry to so phil phil but i don't i don't think authoritarianism isn't the central question here anyway i mean I don't disagree with many of your characterizations there, but I don't think that it's to the point, the point more is about centralization rather than authoritarianism per se. Right. So um, it's about having, you know, a kind of a, of a political vanguard rather than uh, a, a kind of more um, spontaneous sort of movement.
0: In the interview, Murawski is um, uh, admiring of what he takes to be um, this effectively authoritarian centralized direction um, which isn't, you know, the len for better or for worse. I mean, it's not simply not the Leninist model. So he wants to. He's kind of projecting a Leninism onto the right and saying we're all kind of terrible anarchists. Let's get our house in order by being more authoritarian. So I mean, it, it, everything about it is also over tit. The other problem is, and this is a consistent problem on the, I mean, in terms of the left, and it's very glaring here, is returning to the Trump is a fascist line. So, in his view, um, the COVID pandemic and in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic, um, it's a Weimar style situation that the um, protesters, the gun toting protesters in Michigan and elsewhere who want to end the lockdown are the insert, you know, kind of the proto brown shirts of a new fascist era. And so it falls into the trap of um, oxygenate, you know, kind of trying to ramp up and rev up the left again with the threat of imminent fascism, which puts us back in the position of lesser evilism. Constantly, so always um, resurrecting the fascist threat is always a way to boost the chances of lesser evilism, rally around the Democrats, and rally around any kind of option that is better than the terrible, bleak fascist dystopia that's the way t- that awaits us. Um, right. So, I mean, I have so. Uh,
2: Nobody, yeah. I mean, okay, but let, let's 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 but like, I wanted to take on like some of the specifics of, of the thing and, as well yeah, because and there, there are the, some good points. I mean, I, I don't I don't think he's just I don't think he's just. Uh, you know, kind of waving the or sounding the alarm about kind of imminent fascism. I think it's more a, a pointing out a kind of transformation within neoliberalism, uh, I mean, you know, not just the neoliberal thought collective, but within ne- neoliberals as a whole towards more, uh, for lack of a better word, political neoliberalism. And especially, you know, the reference he makes to, to Murray Rothbard uh, towards a more nationalist uh, and and xenophobic, and you know, I, I, he uses the term kind of you know fascist, um, but I'll use it in quotation marks. Um, you, you know, let's say a more fascist form of neoliberalism, um, which I don't think is implausible. I think um, it is. You know, and
0: I think the dystopia is already here. Um, the dystopia of lockdowns, the dystopia always
2: get worse. Well, it can always get worse. Well, though. That, yeah, but you this know.
0: this kind of deferred dystopianism of the left, I mean, things things will get worse, no doubt about it. But the idea that we're on the, always on the brink of apocalypse and fascism is the only way in which the left can motivate its arguments is part of the problem, and Murrowski reproduces it here right. um, in glorious style. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, I mean the own. I just think you know the um, the idea that um, I mean the one you know the one point to take away is the left aren't going to be automatic beneficiaries of the COVID pandemic. This is true. No,
1: I mean, this is, this is, this is the starting point of the article. And I feel like you kind of skip to the end to some points, which, you know, there might be quite valid disagreement with, but there is a useful starting point here, which is the assumption that the crisis doesn't necessarily favor the left um, because it exposes a necessary flaw in the economic system. I mean, there, there is a, there is a question of political organization. Um, and who is better um, placed to respond to to respond to a crisis? A crisis is not a neutral thing. Obviously, it's it's a polit- it has a political element. And this, I think, is a you know it is an important starting point that there is no alternative from the left in terms of handling this crisis. So it 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 is a useful exercise to look at who are the different organisations or organisational forms that propose different sorts of ideas that respond to this clear failure of the system.
0: So there's that. an interest, there's a debate that always happens with, uh, with for us on ABB, and I don't know if you guys have had it, I presume you have, but whenever we say, like, neoliberalism is over, and there's going to be a greater role for the state in the future, people always turn around and say, oh, I'm surprised you're that optimistic, um, as if we're making the case for optimism that the simple kind of expansion of the role <laughs> of the state yeah. is something to be uh, unambiguously celebrated, or that the end of neoliberalism means that we automatically get something better. So. I mean, certainly, that's not our position, and it is worth criticising and calling out. Um, and so, Murawski is right to call that into question. Um, however, what I take issue with, as I've trying as I've been trying to say, is that he kind of goes in the opposite direction, imagining that neoliberalism is going to be boosted when it seems to me its political authority has been completely shattered and it's not going to recover. That's not to say that it's going to. Um, at all at once, all neoliberalism is going to disappear, but that it's on the defensive and it's being rolled back or it's disintegrating effectively, but with nothing to take its place. And that's a slightly different problem than the one that he sets up.
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes it reading. This made me think that there's um, often a confusion or more an equivalence between three different groups that the left kind of constructs as enemies. One is neoliberals. The other is technocrats. And the third is capitalists so I mean that's obviously being a little bit crude but clearly it seems well it seems clear to me that the neoliberal project can be quite easily chunked and you know who's who's really defending neoliberalism in terms of saying I am, I'm a neoliberal I'm proposing a purely neoliberal you know maybe that's market uh, market fundamentalist maybe it's not but I'm proposing a purely neoliberal solution to coronavirus people are not you know I don't I don't really see many people sort of treading that line but it is clear that it's the same group of people who have a specific class interest and they can retain that interest or they can defend it and advance it and retain their power or their dominant position while changing to a more state capitalist um, mode of governance and whether that's neoliberalism whether it's continuous or discontinuous is is an interesting question but i think it you know it can miss the point if you if you're too focused on on this word and, and and its origins with these different groups of people because we're i mean we're talking about or i think we probably should be talking about class rather than about is neoliberalism or or proto or ordo or neo neo liberalism or various neoliberalisms
2: and i mean the, i guess the morovsky thing uh prompts a counterfactual, you know, in its emphasis on the influence of the Montpellier Society, and then later on, you know, the role more recently of like Koch brothers institutions and whatever, that, uh, you know, absent those, the influence of those organizations, that rule would be or the regime would be something very drastically different, uh, and that it would be more social democratic as if they, that would be somehow a default, uh, which, which is by no means the case. So, you know, absent the influence of those organizations, maybe policy would have been less, a little bit less market orientated, a bit less keen on creating markets or, or stimulating competition. But it doesn't mean that uh, that rule by elites would have been kind of more friendly necessarily. And similarly, in a, in a kind of coming post neoliberal future it doesn't mean that policies aren't—you won't have economically punitive policies. It, it won't mean that you won't have austerity for certain groups of people or even for for large parts of society. Uh, it just means that things will be managed in a different way, uh, so that the state might take a more direct role in in managing the economy. That's all that means. So it doesn't mean nice things are coming because neoliberalism is ending, um, and I think that was always the limitation of the the anti-neoliberal left you
0: you heard it here listeners
2: So speaking of punitive, uh, we'll move to the third article, which is a proposition for how to deal with the coronavirus crisis, which, uh, well, George,
1: tell us who, who it's yeah. by first. And I thought before we before we tackle the article, um, I was just r- reminded of this um, saying by Confucius that if, if I walk among three people, one of them, or there, there must be my teacher, one of the three. And this means that we can always learn from from one another and from and from these uh from these articles i'm not saying necessarily that this one is the one that um can teach can teach us but certainly it's quite provocative and and interesting so yeah the um, the article <laughs> that i wanted to introduce um is by the american programmer curtis uh, Yarvin, who's probably better known as mencius moldberg um Moldbug and it's had a very influential blog in sort of late noughties called Unqualified Reservations which sort of sounds like a b-sides collection of a 2000s post-rock uh, band but yeah it was very influential for the neo reactionary movement and he came up with this medium post um, plan A for coronavirus so the idea here is that basically coronavirus is a test for governments um, and his central claim is that the the US government has failed um, and that this is not just a failure of this specific government but of this form of government basically liberal democracies are not able to solve problems of this of this scale um, and so then he comes up with quite a um, quite a I mean maybe we can talk through the solution that he's that he's posed but I think the starting point is is quite interesting this idea and so this is a quote from the the article the terrible truth of the virus that the virus has revealed is that the us and the uk as opposed to post-communist asia and post uh napoleonic europe and not even countries they are free trade zones so he calls um coronavirus america's chernobyl and he basically sort of sets up this this narrative that this is a this is state failure and the responses need to be um accordingly kind of drastic but do we i guess the question is whether we accept this as a as a sort of as a starting point that it's it's an it's a it necessitates some of the junking of the older solutions to political problems that states would have provided
2: i mean i think it's clear like insofar as it's a critique of the withered neoliberal state and its capacities to um, actually manage problems, manage the economy, society. Uh, I think it's true, and you know, even from you know looking at it from a Marxist point of view, as from a neoreactionary, reactionary, authoritarian, whatever point of view, uh, that one can agree, I guess, in in that um, in that diagnosis of, of what of what the what the neoliberal state lacks basically, and that specifically with the COVID crisis, that you know most Western states have not responded well, you know, I mean, it's terrible, the number of deaths, uh, the the confusion, the, the lack of policy coherence, and so on, um, and the authoritarianism. So, you know, you kind of get, as we've discussed before, but you know, what we have in most places in most Western states is the worst of both worlds where you get authoritarianism, but probably not enough authoritarianism to really deal with it if you were going to go down that road, uh, and without the kind of capacities to organize, you know, testing and tracing regimes and so on. Uh, so in, in so far as you know as far as that goes yeah I'm all, I'm on board
0: I was um I mean I was very I don't know taken aback I suppose by the I don't think I've read moldbug before I was taken aback by how bad it was I suppose I was expecting this kind <laughs> of you know I don't know the kind of uh, the great intellectual of the old right or something you can see why they disappeared you know in a few months after Trump's victory um so So, uh, first of all, I mean, it buys into the worst kind of apocalypse mongering over Corona. You're going to know somebody who dies from Corona. It's the end, you know, the end of the world. It's exposed everything. It's the kind of it's finally upon all of this kind of doom mongering. And then it's so it's like a crudely written 19 year old essay, disconnected thoughts, not properly kind of, you know, some insights strung along without any real synthetic integration Very poor, you know, lack of evidence, not very kind of this uh, faux, this faux highbrow style is affected through invoking various kinds of ideas and making, shifting various kinds of emphases over the course of the argument, but just so disappointing if that, you know, is expecting something more from the old right that has been well, boosted so, so by the lack. So,
1: so what you're saying is you wanted to like it. You wanted to like near reactionary thought <laughs> and you were disappointed that you couldn't find more to agree with. No, I did. I... As, but as to the
2: substance of it.
1: Yeah. So so, yeah, I guess um, the, the solution, the, the the kind of centerpiece of the solution is the proposing of a coronavirus agency um which essentially has absolute sovereignty to deal with all problems and i I kind of thought maybe this is why this sort of um this sort of writing is is appealing or has some vividness to it because i thought well this is like the starting point of a dystopian thriller so it's like set in kind of 2060 and then you have this coronavirus agency which started in 2020 which now has absolute dominion over the world and has somehow managed to kind of parlay its, its um, emergency powers permanently and you know the, the plucky heroes then go and take down the coronavirus agency um but yeah i mean this i was kind of surprised how despite the the kind of seeming radicalism of some of the ideas like the fed should basically close out the stock market for cash and then owns all public companies um it, yeah it didn't really seem to have a um I don't know Well, and maybe this is not this is not surprising but it didn't really have a kind of political element to it it's like here's here's how we can have these technical solutions but they're just a bit harder edged and and cooler and more radical than than the the balanced technocrats we're going to get shit done and they're just going to talk about low inflation in their central banks
2: I I don't think it was that technical though I mean I think they're directly political solutions but they are they authoritarian authoritarian okay, they're not mass ones solutions. And anti-democratic ones. So, um, I mean, unless you want to say that, you know, politics is only mass politics, which, you know, there's an argument that that has <laughs> that, you know, that you could you could argue that. But I mean, I think more more interesting is the sense of the distributed uh, distributed authority of like neoliberal states. Where there's a lot of bureaucracy, like people are in charge of agencies which don't really hold power, but you know authority is divested to them from elected representatives. This whole sort of mess that we're familiar with is really frustrating to someone on the far right, just as much as it might be to someone on the left as well. Uh, you know, he he makes the point that someone's appointed the head of some agency and they become a tsar of an agency, except they're not a real tsar like I would like them to be. They're uh, you know they're just a kind of administrator and actually can't sack people or have them beheaded. Uh, in the, I think mean, he doesn't say beheaded. That's that's my flourish, but um, make SARS great again. But 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 it's but it's also it's also interesting that you know in terms of his vision of society, his complaint that you know what you have is a kind of soft lockdown. This pathetic, ineffective lockdown, uh, especially in the United States, uh, is done because, and I, I grabbed this quote, Americans are children. They are puerile, spoiled, and arrogant. When they look in the mirror, all they see is a king or a queen. Can kings be managed like wildlife? A king is not an elk. Anyway, that that's just a a reference to to an analogy he makes with so elves. But the point is, is that Americans are too prickly and think of themselves as too high and mighty, uh, and don't allow themselves to be managed by an authoritarian state with clear lines of control and so on.
1: It's weird, right? Whenever somebody talks about looking like other people looking in the mirror and what other people see looking in the mirror, isn't this just a kind of classic example of projection? Because that's what this person is must be seeing when they they look in the mirror. I mean, there, there is a certain sort of a, I guess certain not appeal but you can see how this idea that the lockdown has not been you know it's been a bit kind of lily-livered a real lockdown a real kind of getting shit done lockdown would have been like really taking away civil, uh, civil liberties not just kind of asking people to give them up but actually taking them taking them away
2: I mean, that's right i think that's right it, it you have literally the worst of both worlds in many ways in the state responses so you know you don't have the state commandeering you know creating a real war economy uh, commandeering industries to 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 produce uh, masks and PPE and ventilators and whatever, um, so you still have this kind of neoliberal form of leaving it to to the market, albeit with the state just sending signals, um, and then you have a, a lockdown, but one which isn't particularly severe. I mean, you know, the article makes a point that in Spain and Italy they were far more severe, and even they weren't nearly what the the Chinese state did. So, I mean, they are lily-livered lockdowns. Now, you might argue that we shouldn't be doing lockdowns. Fine, you know, um, or that they should be much more limited or much more specifically applied. Uh, They should definitely have been done earlier, probably, you know, if you're going to go down that road. Um, So I I understand the the, the frustration, or at least that that you end up uh, between two stools with the lockdowns.
0: It's uh, um, indicated as a justification for greater authoritarianism. So rather than explaining the halting character and the uneven character of the way in which lockdowns are applied, and what it is about a what it is about a state that um, makes or, or states in general that make such tremendous shows of coercion without willing to enforce the without willing to go take it through all the way. That's one way to. I mean, it's a to set up the it's a way of setting up the justification for greater authoritarianism rather than trying to understand what's actually going on. So it's you know, I mean, without being sorry, it's, once again, being, thought, being, uh, sorry, once again, once again time.
2: Phil, Phil, Phil. Without and willing to be under because it did the connection was yeah. bad again. It was rah, 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 rah. without without being willing to understand what's going on, something like that. Are you from there. sorry,
1: Phil, are you doing that deliberately to your voice, like making it really <laughs> distorted, like the internet connection's cutting out? If you are then please stop doing that because it's there he is.
0: It becomes, uh, so again, sorry, be, Phil. it becomes a justification for greater authoritarianism. So instead of being a way to understand or trying to penetrate to what's happening in terms of the uh, the peculiarity of states that have to make tremendous performances of authority and the exercise of force, They instead, he seeks to simply use, draw attention to to the contradictions of the lockdowns in Western states in order to justify greater authoritarianism, which is, I suppose, as you'd expect, given his political background. But it's still I mean, I don't want to I mean, it doesn't seem to me to Mm. have much mileage in any case.
1: Yeah, I think my my sort of central, um, although I think it was an interesting piece to read, my central Disagreement with it is, or or question for this kind of approach, is whether it's it is actually true that coronavirus will mean that people essentially make a judgment that states have failed across across the world, particularly in the US, but across the world, will this lead to a kind of a a a real a real change in the way that people see political authority? Um, I I don't know. I don't think so. And i mean and and that's essentially the the starting point of of the article that that there's a shared assumption that people will see this as straightforwardly an example of state failure and therefore will be attracted to radical solutions but i don't i think that case has to be made politically that it's a that it's a political crisis and i've i've made this point a couple of times before it's experienced a health crisis secondarily as an economic crisis but you have to make it a political crisis and that's what Hasn't really necessarily happened, a you know, a broad level, and the left particularly hasn't really been able to do.
2: Well, yeah. Though on the other hand, you know, the continuing decline uh, of of trust in political authorities could be greatly accelerated by this. And you know, some people might be led to the conclusion that we need more authoritarian solutions. Uh, Some people might decide to, you know to mistrust politics even more and, you know, not want authoritarianism either. Um, And yeah, to be politicized in any kind of more leftwards direction, yes, that actually needs some some political impetus to it. But I think it's important to remember that you can have a political crisis uh, without direct political intervention and that you can have people coming to authoritarian conclusions precisely because of a lack of politicization. So, you know, I think in that regard, something like uh, mold bugs conclusions might actually have you know might might have some takers out there
1: yeah i i yeah i think you you probably what you say has has a bit of of truth to it although to to kind of go back to an earlier point it 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 doesn't seem to me that this intellectual stream um or current or or whatever it was at one point has really that much left um in it i think it, it does seem to, to have to have dated particularly particularly badly and i don't know if it's um just not being in the american t- context but it doesn't seem that that kind of um alt-right near reactionary approach will have will have all that many takers i mean it seems it seems in some ways rich coming from you know perspective that we're coming from because there's not necessarily any immediate takers to our to our solutions but um yeah, I guess, you know, we'll we'll see in the next next few years who benefits politically as a whole from from coronavirus.
2: I mean, I just want to make one last point, actually, just to close this off, is that I mean, if you perceive the the, the problems and the inadequacies of the state today as a consequence of too much democracy rather than too little democracy, uh, ideas like this do have quite a lot of appeal like just put people in charge without having to negotiate all this institutional nonsense just get the job done right that always has a certain intuitive appeal um, and i think the argument is uh not to you know defend the the compromises of a of an imperfect democracy but to push for a greater democracy you know a greater substantial uh engagement and uh, and and popular power so um you know that that's that's the task rather than i think some people would would seek to uh you know defend the the kind of shoddy compromises of today which are i think and and i think it's something that all the three of the articles that we discussed today uh bear witness to to some regard that they all say uh that the shoddy compromises are completely inadequate
1: yeah yeah well well put All right, we'll leave
2: that here uh, for this three articles. Uh, We'll be back with another one of these in about a month's time. Let us know what you think. Uh, I know a lot of you have gotten in touch uh, on Patreon, commenting or sending us messages. You know, most of it positive, uh, some of it negative, which is always useful as well. Uh, So do keep it coming. Let us know what you think. Uh, We're back with a free episode uh, next week with Anna Kachin on culturally conservative critics of capitalism. That's it for now. Catch you later. Bye bye.